10, and uh, we want everyone to be able to follow along with us as we study the Word. So if you happen to be here without a Bible this morning, just raise your hand where it is you're standing, and one of the men coming up the aisle with a Bible happily to supply you uh, with one. If you're visiting with us this morning, on Sunday mornings we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order, and this way we get to hit every single thing that he said and everything that he did. We want it all to be built into our our lives and into our understanding. And so we come to chapter 10, Mark's Gospel, uh, verse 13. Then they, that is, parents, brought their little children to him, Jesus, for the purpose that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased with the disciples, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. And assuredly, I don't like it in the New King James. Give me the old King James on this. Verily, verily. I I like the King James otherwise, but... uh, I wish they'd kept the verily, verily, but enough of my problems. Verily, verily, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up, the children into his arms, laid his hands on them, and pronounced a blessing upon them. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, every bit of it, every jot, every tittle, every line, every precept. And we want all of it, Lord, to fashion us in a full and powerful way that only your Holy Spirit can do. And we just surrender to these few verses this morning, surrender to your Spirit, and we say, Lord, fashion us now into the image of Christ as we study these things together. Meet with us through your word this morning, we ask, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This passage of Scripture paints one of the most beloved pictures of Jesus in really all of the Bible, and that is the portrait of Jesus standing with a child in his, ha- in his arms and blessing them. And this morning I want to split this passage up into three divisions. Number one, what it speaks to us as parents Number two, what it speaks to us as disciples, as followers of Jesus. And then number three, what it speaks to those of us who are here today who are yet unsaved. This passage teaches us, as we begin with the parents, it teaches us that as parents we need to bring our children to Jesus. That is a simple truth, but it is a very, very important truth and a powerful truth. And these parents brought their children to Jesus. They brought their children to Jesus in order that he might lay his hands on them and pray a prayer of blessing upon their lives, that they might grow up into wise and holy men and women. These parents brought their children to Jesus at a time in his life and in his ministry when it was actually dangerous to do so. The Jewish religious leaders at this point in his ministry are actively plotting uh, his death 
and seeking his destruction. And so they took a considerable risk in publicly identifying with Jesus in this way at this time, publicly seeking his blessing upon their children. Maybe some of you faced that this morning. The leaders of your former religion, your parents, your grandparents, other family members, an ex-husband or an ex-wife is up in arms because you are bringing your children to Jesus. You're bringing them to children's church. You're reading the Bible to them. You're teaching them to memorize Scripture. And as all of these things are working in the child's life, they begin to speak openly and familiarly related to the Lord in a way that is alarming to those that don't know the Lord. Don't worry about that. Above everything else, bring your children to Jesus. Do what is best for the children. Bring them to Him. Why would they bring their children to Jesus for a blessing? Because they recognize that Jesus has blessings that He alone is able to bestow upon our children. That the very best of us as parents in this room cannot bestow upon our children because we don't possess them. Salvation, perfect wisdom and direction, constant companionship throughout all of their life, infinite love, infinite grace, infinite power, meaning and purpose to life. And this is why you see so many people become followers of Jesus once they have children. Because now as this child is in their arms and in their life, there is that recognition that somehow, is whatever has happened here, I have the very formidable responsibility of fashioning an eternal human being, not only for adult life in this world, but for the life to come. And at that point, people realize that they need God's help in this. They don't want this child to be a byproduct of their wisdom or the byproduct of their own experiment. And so they come to Jesus and they start bringing them to Sunday school. And very often they end up becoming Christians themselves. If you are only going to get one thing right in your role as parents, get this one right. Bring your children to Jesus. To illustrate this point, perhaps you'll allow me to share a little bit this morning about my mother. I love my mother. And I love her to this day. I love her more than ever. I understand her more than ever. But she did supply us as children with a very interesting childhood. I'm told by those who were there in the 1940s and the 1950s that my mother was the greatest woman gambler in the history of Las Vegas, at least up until that time. She was truly a certifiable genius. 
She was raised in New York State, specifically in Binghamton, New York. She completed high school in three years rather than in the normal four, all the while taking college prep classes for her major, which was uh, pre-med, acing classes like fourth-year Latin and these kind of things that marked public education a million years ago. Armed with a scholarship, she entered into the University of Chicago at the age of 16, which at the time was one of the most prestigious universities in the entire United States. She entered the university as a pre-med major, but her true genius was in mathematics. And through a series of very sad events, she was forced to drop out of school ended up coming to Las Vegas by way of Los Angeles because of her husband at the time. Ultimately, she would marry eight times. Only seven men, she married one twice. She was genuinely a stunning combination of beauty and brilliance and class. Well, it wasn't long after she got into Las Vegas that she gained a great deal of attention there. And she found herself in a very, very fast Lane, among power brokers, among entertainers. For those of you above 40, I could begin to name names that all of you would recognize. And because of her mathematical mind, she could remember all of the cards that had been dealt, the cards that were on the table, the cards that were yet to be dealt. And so in these gambling games of of, uh, you know, uh, blackjack and poker and, and all, all of these kind of things. She could count these cards in this way, even when they doubled the decks and these kind of things to try and stop this, and then bet accordingly. It wasn't long before she teamed up with a man who had fallen in love with her, a man of really indescribable wealth. And they were winning anywhere between $20,000 and $50,000 a night. That's 1950s money. Not because they needed the money. He had plenty of money. But they did it for the fun of it. But what it required was being up three days and three nights at a time. And some of this history is alluded to in a famous book on gambling called Beat the Dealer. Now, if you're going to stay up two and three days and nights at a time, that's not natural. And so if you're going to do that, you need a little help. And so though she never drank in her life, she did begin to take uppers to stay awake and began to take downers in order to go to sleep. By this time, she was also running with some very, very heavy company uh, from the organized crime side of, of Las Vegas because they dominated Las Vegas at the time. And I remember my brother and I, I have a twin brother, one time we met our father. It was the only time we met him. We were 30 years old and we met him in San Diego. He came up from Mexico City and we came down from Northern California. And uh, so he was long gone before we were ever born. And But when we met him, we had a single question, and that was, what in the world happened between you and mom that, I mean, here we are at 30 getting to meet you for the first uh, time? He was an accomplished architect and designer in Las Vegas. In fact, in 1953-54, he was the architect and the designer for a home my mother was having built on the 13th hole of the desert in uh, golf course. 
And they became involved briefly. And then one night as he was returning to her house, he saw these mobsters in front of the house and he knew that in getting involved with her he had gotten involved with someone that that was way over his head and legitimately concerned for his life he turned the car, car around headed to Mexico City where he continued his life and his his career until his death well I think all of us know that geniuses can be very fragile people And this was a lifestyle that my mother was not going to be able to sustain. And ultimately she did break. And she had a nervous breakdown. She lost everything, including the kids, for a time. And ultimately was institutionalized. When we moved from Las Vegas to Napa, the reason that we moved to Napa was, number one, we had to get her out of Las Vegas. And then number two, we had to move to a place where a state hospital was located in order to give her care. She was diagnosed ultimately as a paranoid schizophrenic and she would be in and out of Napa State Hospital for the rest of her life. She'd do well for a time and then life would become too much for her and then she would blow out and end up back in there for a time, get out, do well for a while and the cycle was repeated uh, over and over again. For whatever reason, and I never have investigated it, maybe you had to do something really big to get readmitted into Napa State Hospital, but whatever the reason was, uh, whenever her return to the state hospital always involved a very violent, very traumatic, uh, most often a very bloody event that would occur, and then she would be taken away I remember as a a boy of eight or nine years old, you could always tell that it was coming. You knew a week out, okay, here we go. We know where this goes, and now it's a time for survival. And there would be, I'd lie on my bed at night trying not to fall asleep with all my energy, not to fall asleep because tonight's going to be the night that we could all end up stabbed to death in in our beds. You know, people today, they... They go to the movies to terrorize themselves. For us, it was free, and and it was real. I could go on and talk about foster homes, too many to mention, a stepfather that came into my life at the age of eight and was not rid of him until I got out of the house, who I hated with a a dangerous hatred. Uh, To me, he was the absolute perfect storm of a stepchild's nightmare related to a stepfather. He was cruel and he was selfish and he was utterly devoid of love. I had never met before, never met since a man like this. I have to be careful because he is the father of two of my sisters. But I can honestly observe There is not one life that he touched in my experience with him that he did not ruin, including our lives growing up. Thankfully, he mellowed with age long after we were gone, and ultimately he came to know the Lord on his deathbed, for which I am very grateful. All of this disappointment and all of this tragedy in my mother's life 
set her on a spiritual thirst search. And on one of those times in the Napa State Hospital, she ran into a woman by the name of Dorothy, who was, though she suffered very acutely with depression, she really loved the Lord and was very, very deep in the things of the, of the Lord. And she introduced my mom to Christ. And she invited my mother to attend the church that she attended once she got out. Which upon getting out, my mother then went to the church and she took all four of us children with her. And in that little Plymouth Brethren church in Napa, California, on a weekly basis, we kids were loved, we were pointed to Jesus in a way that none of us would ever forget. And I stand before you today and I can say with a perfect honesty, in fact more than with an honesty, with a passion in my bones, I would rather have had the misery of that childhood, but at some time be introduced to Christ than to have had the most stable home and material possessions and vacations and educational opportunities and not have been introduced to Christ as a young person. Amen. Though it would be years before the seeds that were sown into each of our four lives would look like anything to the naked eye. All four of us today know the Lord and walk with the Lord of the kids. I lovingly say, regarding my mother, she didn't get a lot of things right, but she got that right. And when she died at her memorial service, one after another of her children rose up and called her blessed for it. If you are only going to get one thing right in your role as a parent, get this one right. Bring your children to Jesus. And verse 16 assures us that when we do, He will bless them. Notice second what this passage speaks to us as disciples. When Jesus' disciples as the parents were bringing the children to Jesus, they rose up to prevent the parents from bringing the children to Jesus. It was probably innocent on their part. They looked at the kids and said, you know, children aren't that important, relatively speaking. Jesus is in a pivotal part of his ministry, and, and they're trying to protect Jesus' time, and they're trying to and protect his strength from this uh, interruption. And yet Jesus, verse 14, his reaction to rebuffing the kids and moving them away from him was very, very strong. And we're told that this displeased Jesus. Literally, he was incensed by it. It offended him, is what the word means in the Greek. It made him, in, again in the Greek, irate. So I look at this scene, and Jesus didn't get this way with the disciples very often. So I look at this scene and I think to myself, something really, really displeases him that I do not want to be guilty of related to him. Out of that displeasure, we're told in verse 14, 
he rebuked the disciples with the words, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. I think that when most of us read this rebuke of Jesus, we have the sense that it doesn't come anywhere near to any of us. After all, I would never deliberately stand in the way of a child coming to Jesus in this way. But is Jesus' displeasure limited to those who turn children away from Jesus for the sole reason of thinking that he's too busy? Or does it include any activity that hinders little children from coming to him? What about the Christian parent who fails to bring their children to church for long weeks and months and years because of their own spiritual lukewarmness? What about the Christian parent who only gets the children to church every second or third or fourth week because their priorities are upside down? The weekend is about fun, it's about pleasure, it's about sports, it's about running here, it's about running there. But it's not for laying a spiritual foundation in their child's life. But if we happen to be around on Sunday and we don't have anything better to do, if it's convenient for us to work a little God into our children's lives, then maybe you'll see them at church. And they model to the children that everything else in life is more important than God. That He will accept the leftovers. That He only deserves the leftovers, not the best part of the week. And then one day they are shocked when their children grow up with no respect for God and no reverence for God following what they have seen their parents' lives. What about the child who is the most spiritual one in the household and is forced to urge and even beg their parents to take them to church? A childhood is a very finite and very formative time in life. And we need to use every bit of that time in their lives to build a godly foundation in their lives. Because we will never have that chance again. Someone has said, the tree is in the seed. And what they mean by that is that when we are fashioning a child, we are also fashioning an adult. To a very large degree, we are setting the course of their adult life. It's one of the most interesting things about growing older as a person is to recognize how powerful the impressions that were made upon us as children remain in our lives for good and for bad. And to this day, I have a great love for the local church. I have a great Belief in the power of the local church. Because when I was junior and senior high school aged, I was brought into contact 
with a loving, Bible-centered church. And it has given me a lifelong soft spot for the church that I will never lose. Though nobody, in looking at the four of us kids, and surely my twin brother and I in that Valley Bible Chapel in Napa, nobody would have looked at our two lives and even dreamed that God was doing anything in our lives. But He was working something powerful and eternal. And only He knew it. And only we knew it. Though the church was very, very small, made up almost entirely of elderly people, though everyone seems elderly when you're eight years old or 13 years old. Again, by outward appearances, there was nothing in terms of that church that could have appealed to a youth at my age. But in that goofy little church, I experienced a reality and a power at a young age that I could not find anywhere else in the world. And it brought me back to the Lord as an adult. For years it would look like everything went in one ear and out the other, but it didn't. I'd been permanently impacted in my youth by the power of the Word of God, by the power of the love of God's people, by the power of so many godly examples. Everybody else would have looked and said, they're a lost cause. We're not getting in anywhere with them. Look at where they come from. I mean, there's no hope for them. But God was working. And one of the things that I think we need to be careful of as parents is in this area of becoming spotty in our church attendance. Because it doesn't just affect us. It affects our children because when we miss, they miss. And they have only one childhood in which to have this foundation laid. One of the biggest tragedies that I see occurring today is this tendency of children who have been raised in the church, and they're now adults, who have had a wonderful, godly foundation laid in their lives by their parents. But when they then become parents, instead of then passing that godly heritage and foundation onto their children, they become spotty about church attendance. They begin to compromise about the evil that is allowed into their homes, things that their parents would have never allowed them to be exposed to. And what they don't seem to realize is that they're setting their children up for a train wreck because their children will now not be able to enter into their teen years and then their adult lives as biblically equipped as they were in order to successfully navigate it and all of the temptations that are coming their way. No parent who has been raised with a godly childhood 
should ever deny that same blessing to their own children. Let them wear second-hand clothing. Let them miss out on some of the activities of the world. But do not deny them this. The Bible says that children are a heritage from the Lord. Every one of them is a gift from God. And God intends that every child that's born in this world would be raised in the things of Him. And it isn't just the older ones that need the Lord. The teenage ones. The young ones need Him too. Sometimes we look at the little kiddos, the little whippersnappers and say, How much can they need God? But they are processing life at, at almost light speed. They are, they are having to take uh, tests at school. They're having to learn math. They're having to learn spelling. They're having conflicts with their friends. They have their own fears in their lives. They have the whole, their, their own tendencies of their flesh that come from Adam and Eve. They are processing a huge world on a daily basis. And one of the greatest experiences I think that a parent can ever have with a child that's been raised in the things of the Lord is to have them try out the skates or to try out learning how to ride a bicycle or run too fast and fall and skin their knee. And then you grab that child and you take him up in your arm and you say, let's pray for you on this. And you begin to pray to Jesus to help them now with this skinned knee. And, and usually a parent can scoop them up while they're still pulling in enough air before the big cry comes out. And it's amazing to watch, it's supernatural to watch in a child that that prayer will do infinitely more to quiet their hearts down than any that daddy kissed your boo-boo will ever do. And you know why? Because in the middle of their little trial, you are putting their focus on things that are eternal. They're learning to process this immediate need in the light of God's love and the light of God's power. And what they learn to do with skinned knees, they will one day learn to do with much larger problems that await them in adult life. And finally and briefly, let me close with what this passage has to say to those of you who are not Christians yet here today. Jesus said in verse 14, of such concerning the children, of such is the kingdom of God. And then in verse 15, unless we receive the kingdom of God as a little child, we will not be able to enter into it. What does he mean by that? Very often as adults, our thinking is that children really have everything in the world to learn from us and that we have really virtually nothing you know, to learn uh, from them. They don't have anything to teach us. And thus, all of our attention is given to moving children from what we think is the inferiority of childhood into the superiority of adulthood. But Jesus declares in this passage 
that these children have much to teach us as adults and in nothing less than in the most important area of life, that is in how to enter in the kingdom of God, how to be saved. And here Jesus is talking about salvation, about how one gets into God's family now and ultimately into heaven later. And he says that in order to be saved, we have to receive the kingdom of God as a little child. How do we do that? In receiving salvation, children excel adults in their humility in their willingness to accept authority. A young child is used to the fact that they are a person under authority, that they are under the authority of someone who is older and wiser than them, namely parents. And with adulthood, we can tend to think that we are wiser than everyone else and hesitant to put ourselves under the authority of anyone else, even when that anyone is God Almighty Himself. It takes a child's humility to acknowledge my sin and my need for a Savior. A second area that children tend to excel adults in concerning salvation is humility demonstrated in a teachableness, in a willingness to openly confess that they don't know everything, anything about everything or everything about anything. (laughs) Children are so eager to learn and to ask questions. They're so inquisitive. There are points in their growing up where they can almost drive a, a person crazy with the number of questions that they ask. But often when we become adults, we're less willing to admit that we don't know a single thing about something and be willing to be taught by someone else concerning it, and especially regarding the subject as important as eternal salvation. For many, they just blow the Bible off, and they're content to remain ignorant in it, rather than to ever admit their ignorance of it. A third area in which young children tend to excel adults is in their lack of pride. Very often when an adult has attained to some level of, of money or some level of accomplishment in life, the, the attaining of, of some amount of, of power, their pride and their reputation becomes a severe obstacle to their salvation. Do you mean that I have to confess my sin and trust in Jesus and publicly confess His Lordship in my life? Do you know who I am? Do you know how many people know me? Do you know what people will say about me? Do you know what is going to happen to my reputation? Do you know what I'm going to have to face tomorrow? If word gets out about this, very often you hear people say that people should wait until they're adults before they make a decision about the spiritual direction that they're going to take in life. But the fact of the matter is, as Jesus teaches here, is that you are more 
clear-headed related to that decision as a child than you ever will be as an adult. By adulthood, most of us are carrying significant baggage that complicates the decision for us. A fourth area where they tend to excel adults in is in the area of trust. They're just used to trusting people. They have to trust people. They're used to trusting their parents for food and for clothing and for shelter, and trust is just something that's a part of their world. I remember when we were raising our two daughters, still back in Napa, we were new Christians, and in their, the front bedroom, we had bunk beds in there. It was really neat how that whole thing was kind of set up. But we'd have this game that I'd play with the girls, and I'd walk into the room, and what they would do is there was this neat kind of way that they could climb up onto the top bunk. And then they would launch themselves off of the top, top bump, bunk and uh, cry out, Daddy! And then I was supposed to catch them. Uh, sometimes they began the game earlier than I did. So I just knew if, if I heard that, that there's a human projectile coming my way, turn around and, and to catch them. And, and back then I was a lot younger. I mean, they could jump and jump and jump and jump. Now, now the grandkids, if they do it, I, I do it about four times and say, let's get something to eat. <laughs> it's funny how your attentions go in different directions as you get older. But the kids jumped off that, that bunk bed time and time again, never one concern over whether I'd catch them or not. And I caught them every single time. Often when we become adults, we can really struggle with trusting other people. Because we learn that they're not that trustworthy. And so we work hard to do everything on our own. We become self-made. We become determined in this kind of way. But then we carry this attitude over to God, who is infinitely different than man. He will never fail us. He will never disappoint us. Some people get a place in their life as adults where they just come and they say, I can't take another disappointment. I cannot give my heart, my mind, my soul and strength not one more time to one more place and get hurt here. And so they're hesitant, even related to God. But supremely, finally, we need to model children in their willingness to excitedly and gratefully receive a free gift from those who love them. Children love gifts, and they love gifts from those that love them. And what an adult has to do in modeling this faith of children is to have a willingness to accept the free gift that a heavenly Father has given us, the gift of salvation. And to do it with excitement. And to do it with gratitude. How does a person receive God's free gift of salvation? By just simply coming to a place in our lives where we recognize we're a sinner. And a willingness to say to God, God, I confess that my condition is exactly as you have diagnosed me. I am a sinner. <laughs> 
which simply means we're less than perfect. But I also believe, and I believe that that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you, but I also believe that you loved me so much that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross in order to pay the penalty of my sin, and I believe he was buried and rose again on the third day, and I believe that he is the gift, your gift of a Savior to this world and to me, and on this day I choose to turn from my own directions in life to put my faith in him and to give you my life, and when a person does that, receives the gift by faith, by trusting in God's Savior, at that moment in time, God's Holy Spirit comes into that person's life and they're born again. They begin, in an, they begin a personal relationship with God that God will be faithful to all of this life and the life to come. The gift sits there. Hundreds of millions, I don't know how many Christians in the world this morning... Many more will become Christians today. But for those who are not yet Christians, all around this world and in this room this morning, the gift sits. What good is a gift unless I receive it? And a child will leave no gift unopened. And a childlike faith will not allow this gift from God to go unopened. This passage teaches us to the parent, bring your children to Jesus. To the disciple, don't hinder them from coming to Jesus. And to the unsaved, become like a little child today, accept the gift and enter into the kingdom of God. And there will be men and women up in front immediately after our service. They will have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they would love to pray with you to receive God's gift today. If you need prayer for anything in your life this morning, these same men and women would love to pray with you and to pray for you. Let's stand together and we'll pray now.